Genesis was like an overture to a grand opera. It made me think of Aida. It set the overture when you're, when you go to an opera and an overture sets the mood, it gives like little snippets of what we can expect in the main drama. The stage has been set. The scenery is in place. As Exodus begins, the curtain rises in Egypt some 400 years after the death of Joseph. Now we're going to cover some really confusing stuff today. So jot your questions down as we go, and we will stay together in a single breakout session today so we can talk about it. There's some hard stuff coming up in this, in this lesson. The story in Exodus takes place around 1440 BCE, we think. And we get to the date this way. According to 1 Kings 1, Solomon began building his temple 480 years after the Exodus. And we know he began building his temple around 960 BCE. That date's pretty solid, give or take a few years. When you get around to 1000 BCE, we start getting better historical data. So if that's the case, that would place Exodus around 1440 BCE. Now, if the Hebrews were in Egypt 430 years or so, as God told Abraham they would be, that would put Abraham at around 1870 BCE, which is right in the range we would expect. You know, the, what's fluid here is that whole 430 years, the 480 years, those time spans, you know, ancient authors are notoriously unreliable on dates and time spans. But we're going to use the 1440 date for Exodus as being the most probable because some of the other details in Exodus are consistent with this date. The book of Exodus begins 80 years before the actual exit from Egypt occurs. So that would put us at about 1520 BCE. The book begins by telling us the Pharaoh in Egypt knew nothing about Joseph. Now this makes sense because Joseph lived during the second intermediate period of Egypt. And that group of dynasties in the Nile Delta has recently been overthrown. A new set of dynasties has arisen, and the capital has moved back down to Thebes, much farther south. This is the beginning of the New Kingdom period in Egypt. And it's in this period that Egypt reaches the peak of its power in the world. The leader of this new dynasty is Amos I, and he's finally able to repel the Hyksos from the Nile Delta and reunite Egypt under his rule. Now think about that for a second. The Nile Delta is where the Hebrews have settled, remember? They've been ruled by the Hyksos pharaohs. And you know from Genesis, the Hebrews were already despised by Egyptians. And the Hyksos are bitter enemies of this new pharaoh. And I think you can see where things are heading for the Hebrews under the new pharaoh. So it's no surprise to read that Pharaoh is alarmed at the overwhelming numbers of Hebrews in the Nile Delta. It makes perfect sense that as part of his campaign to repel the Hyksos and conquer the Delta region, that he would enslave the Hebrews. In fact, Exodus tells us specifically that he's afraid that if the Hebrews rebelled and fought for the Hyksos, they could overpower his forces. So he puts Egyptian slave drivers over them to supervise their labor, and he put them to work building the cities of Pithom and Ramses, both of which are in the Nile Delta. In an attempt to weaken the Hebrews and stop their population growth, he orders their midwives, Shifra and Pua, to kill all Hebrew boys at birth, but to let the girls live. Now, obviously, the males are a threat, whereas the females can be exploited. This is the first example of something very unusual about Exodus, and that is the extreme agency and recognition given to women in the story. These two midwives are actually named in the text. That's remarkable. Notice as we go along that it's the women who drive the story forward and repeatedly intervene to save the Hebrews. Shifra and Pua do not obey Pharaoh's order to commit genocide, and when he calls them to account, 
they tell him, well, the Hebrew women are strong, not like the Egyptian women, and they give birth before we can get there. Exasperated, the Pharaoh orders all his people to drown any Hebrew boys they see. Now, Amos I marries his sisters, as was the custom for Egyptian pharaohs at that time, and they have numerous children. Moses is born just as power was passing from Amos I to his son, Aminotep I, who's shown here. Chapter 2 opens with the birth of Moses. We find out some details later on, that his father's name is Amram, and that Amram marries his aunt Jochebed. They have two children, a boy Aaron and a daughter Miriam, before their new son is born. This last son is born under the threat of genocide, so his mother Jochebed hides him for three months. When it becomes no longer possible to hide him, she fashions a box, literally an ark, out of bulrushes and coats it with tar and asphalt and puts the unnamed baby in the basket to float downriver. Now realize that the Nile flows south to north, so the basket would essentially be heading out to sea. Since the genocide was limited to the area where the Hebrews live, she hopes someone farther north will find the basket and save the baby. It's a slim hope, but she sets her daughter Miriam to watch the basket as far as possible. As Miriam watches, she sees Pharaoh's daughter and her handmaids going down to the river just as the basket is floating by. Now this daughter must have been one of Amos the first daughter, uh, daughters, as we know Aminotep had no daughters. It's also interesting that Pharaoh's daughter would be in the Nile Delta. Remember his capital's at Thebes down south. But excavations show he had a palace constructed at Avaris in the Nile Delta after he conquered it. I bet he did it so he could maintain a threatening presence in the region. It's from this palace at Avaris that Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river to bathe. She's not named here, but in 1 Chronicles 4.18, she's called by the name Bitya, which means daughter of Yahweh. According to this passage, she ends up marrying a man of the tribe of Judah named Mered, whom Jewish tradition recognizes as Caleb, whom we'll run into later in the story. She even names one of her children Miriam, perhaps after Moses' sister Miriam, whom she met the day she found Moses. From all of this, we infer that this daughter of Pharaoh is very sympathetic to the plight of the Hebrews, having seen their suffering firsthand. She will witness the ten plagues, and she apparently will leave Egypt with the Hebrews to begin a new life, to marry and take her new name as daughter of Yahweh. Bitya has her handmaid pull the basket out of the water. She sees the Hebrew baby inside and declares she will adopt him as her own. She names him Moses, which in Egyptian means son of or is born. Now, normally, a god's name would be part of the name. For example, Ramses is actually Ra Moses, which means son of Ra or Ra is born. Here's another one. Moses simply means is born or son of with a blank. In a sort of double pun in Hebrew, his name sounds like draw out, as in draw out of the water. Thinking quickly, Miriam runs up and offers to find a wet nurse for the baby. Bitya agrees. Notice again the agency and importance of women in this story. Miriam runs to get their mother, Jochebed, who cares for Moses until he's weaned which in their culture would have been several years later. Then Jochebed takes Moses to the palace, where he begins his new life as Egyptian royalty. This explains how he knows both languages, Hebrew and Egyptian. Given Bitya's sympathies, he undoubtedly continues to have contact with his birth family and the Hebrew people, but he's educated as an Egyptian prince. One day, when he's grown, Moses goes out to watch the Hebrews at work under their slave masters. He sees one of the Egyptian masters beating a slave. He looks around and seeing no one, he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. 
it's not really clear whether he looks around to make sure no one's watching or whether he looks around to try to find someone to help him stop the beating. But either way, unbeknownst to Moses, someone is watching. The next day, Moses goes back out and sees two Hebrews fighting. He tries to stop the fight, and one of them says, Yeah, who made you boss? Are you going to kill me too? And Moses' heart drops to his stomach. He realizes he was seen. Sure enough, Pharaoh Minotap hears of the incident and orders Moses killed. Moses must run for his life. Moses flees to Midian on the far side of the Sinai Peninsula. This is Midian, as in the Midianite traders we ran into in the story of Joseph. Same guys. Moses is about 40 years old now and in the prime of life. We catch up with him as he sits down by a well and rests. Pretty soon, seven sisters come to the well to water their flocks. The shepherds there try to bar them from the well, but Moses intervenes. Does this story sound familiar? You should recognize this by now as a betrothal story. Sure enough, when the girls tell their father about this brave Egyptian who defended them, their father, Reuel, invites him to dinner. One thing leads to another, and Moses ends up marrying Zipporah, one of the daughters. They name their firstborn son Gershom, which means banishment or traveler there. Their second son is named Eliezer, which means my God is helper, because, Moses says, God saved him from the sword of Pharaoh. Clearly, Moses feels like a fish out of water in Midian. And think about it. What is, who is he exactly? What is he exactly? An Egyptian? A Hebrew? A Midianite? Is he a prince? A slave? A shepherd? It says that during this period, Pharaoh dies. And Amenhotep, we know, reigned only 20 years or so. So it is his death that would have fallen during Moses' exile in Midian. Since Amenhotep's only son had died in infancy, Amenhotep was succeeded by one of his generals, Thutmose I. You may have heard of Thutmose's daughter, Hatshepsut, who eventually became Pharaoh herself. Another 40 years pass. Moses is now 80 years old. One day, Moses is out in the desert shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. You may notice in your Bibles that his father-in-law is identified as Jethro here, while he was called Reuel back in chapter 2. And he's, it says he's at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, which in other places is called Mount Sinai. Using the tools in your backpack, I'm sure you recognize that these name differences and of people, different, different names for the people, different names for the places are because Exodus, like Genesis, is made of two or more versions of the story woven together. So Moses is out in the desert with Jethro's flocks, and we're going to call him Jethro from here on out. And Moses sees a bush burning. Now, this word for bush is an archaic, unusual one. It means thorn, and it, it is, isn't even really much of a bush. It's more of a, like a thorny bramble, and it should burn up immediately, but it doesn't. So Moses turns aside to investigate. As he approaches, God speaks to him from the fire and calls him by name. Moses says, Hine, which means behold. And God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you are on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hides his face because this scares him to death. Everybody knows you cannot look on the face of God and live. And God says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them shrieking for help because of their slave drivers. I know their suffering. I have seen the Egyptians crushing them. I have come to deliver them and bring them to a good and spacious land, flowing with milk and honey, the land of the Canaanites and the other people living there. So go now, 
I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out. Well, Moses is horrified. He can't go back to Egypt. They'll execute him. And he says, how am I to do such a thing? And God says, I will be with you. Now, remember that. This is God's promise. God doesn't say it will be easy. He doesn't promise Moses a long and comfortable life with many blessings. He just says, do it and know that I will be with you. This is quintessentially God. This is exactly how God still speaks to us. He will certainly call us to do impossible things. But wherever we go and however difficult things are, he will be there with us. Then God says, this will be the sign for you to know that I have sent you. You and all the people you bring out will return to this mountain and worship me. Now you can read this two ways. Perhaps God meant the burning bush was the sign. But it's entirely possible that God meant exactly what it sounds like he meant, that the sign would happen after the fact. After Moses does what God tells him, God will meet him here at this mountain, and then Moses will know for sure that God was the one who sent him. Sometimes we have to trust God and step out in faith, even if it might be a fatal mistake. We have to trust that God will come get us if we go wrong. Moses says, but what if I go to the Israelites and they want to know your name? What do I tell them? And God says, I already told you my name. I'm God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That is my name now and forever. And you folks already know why God says this and how this came to be. But here God gives himself another name, a new name. Most Bibles translate the new name as I am who I am. Now remember, there are no vowels in the original Hebrew. So we don't really know how God pronounced this name that cannot be pronounced unless you add some vowels. Now, depending on what vowels you add, it can also mean I will be who I will be or he who brings things into being. But altogether, these capture the idea that God is not static. He is in his very essence becoming, calling into being, He's being itself. He's committed to being known by the names of his people, but he is so much bigger than that. Also, don't be confused by the fact that we already know God as Yahweh from way back in Genesis. This story of the burning bush is in the version of the story that only uses Elohim for the name of God. It's another piece of the evidence that the story is woven, but woven from two different versions. One version that uses the, the name Yahweh all the way back in Genesis, and the other version that doesn't use the name Yahweh until now in Exodus. And God says, tell the elders of Israel this name, and they will believe you. Then you and the elders go to Pharaoh and tell him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, accidentally happened upon us. That's what the Hebrew means here. He, he accidentally happened upon us, and we need to make a three-day journey into the wilderness to make sacrifices to him. And God says, I know Pharaoh will not let you go unless he's forced to, so I will reach out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, and after that he will let you go. And I will give the people favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, so you will not go empty-handed. Every woman will ask her neighbor and the woman who lives in the house for articles of silver and gold and of clothing. Put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder Egypt. Notice the importance of women here. I love how Alter puts it. He says, women constitute the poorest boundary between adjacent ethnic communities. Borrowers of the proverbial cup of sugar, sharers of gossip, and women's lore. That is so true, and it's significant. Later, we'll see some pretty strict prohibitions against intermarriage, and this is exactly why. Women, by their very role in the community, are positioned to be the glue 
that binds diverse communities together. Now Moses just can't see this working. He says, what if they don't believe me? And the Lord says, throw your staff on the ground. But when Moses does that, it becomes a snake and he runs. Then the Lord says, pick it up by its tail. Now anyone who lives in Texas can tell you that's not how to pick up a snake. But in an act of supreme trust, Moses reaches down and picks up the snake by the tail. And it turns back into his staff. I don't know about you, but I might have left that staff outside my tent when I went to sleep that night. Then the Lord says, put your hand in your bosom. And when Moses does that, his hand becomes white with disease. And when the Lord tells him to put it back in and draw it out again, his hand is suddenly well again. And the Lord says, if they still don't believe you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground and it will turn to blood. But Moses says, please, Lord, I've never been a man of words. I'm heavy of speech and of tongue. And the Lord says, who is it that gives a man a mouth or makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be with your mouth. I will tell you what to say. Now think about this for a second. This says the Lord makes us blind or mute or deaf. It doesn't say it's a punishment. It's how some of us are made. Certainly there is illness and evil in the world that causes pain and death of our faculties. But God is not the God of death. God is the God of healing and life. So you can take this passage two ways. These ancient people believed that God struck people with deafness and blindness and made them mute as a punishment of some sort. But I wonder if we should look at this with fresh eyes and ask, isn't it more likely that these are not punishments at all, but are blessings? Is this simply part of the diversity and creativity of God's creation? Are we overlooking what the deaf the mute and the blind are meant to contribute to our lives? Are we simply rejecting those who are different rather than seeing them as a vital and necessary part of our wholeness as a community? And still Moses resists saying, please, Lord, send someone else. Now that makes God mad. <laughs> At this point, God says, what about your brother Aaron? He's a speaker and he's on his way here to see you. I will speak to you and you will speak to him as if you were me and he'll do all the talking. But be sure to take your staff so you can do all the miracles with it. I think it's remarkable that Aaron was already traveling from Egypt to find Moses. I'd love to know that backstory. It's not in the Bible. All we know is the Lord told Aaron to come. Meanwhile, Moses gets ready to leave. The Lord assures him the men who are planning to kill him are dead. So Moses loads up his wife Zipporah and his two sons and heads out towards Egypt. And now we come to one of the most confusing passages in the entire Bible. God says, when you speak to Pharaoh, be sure to do all the miracles I showed you. I will harden his heart so he will not let my people go. Now, obviously, this sounds totally wrong. I mean, God wants Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. So why in the world would he harden Pharaoh's heart to prevent him from letting them go? As usual, the first tool we pull out is to look into the original language. We'll see this refrain 13 times during this story. It turns out it's actually three different Hebrew words, all of which are translated as harden in English. Here, it's the word for obstinate. And it's in the hiffle form of the verb, which means it is being caused to happen. So we can clarify this translation a little bit by saying, I will make his heart obstinate so he will not let my people go. There's one more subtle change, and that is the word so. That's actually one little letter, the Vav, and it's used all the time in Hebrew as a general purpose conjunction. 
it's not even a separate word really it just gets the letter gets appended to the beginning of whatever word follows it and it can mean so it can mean but and most of the time far and away most of the time it means and you have to decide which one it means based solely on context i think and works better here so i'd translate this as i will make his heart obstinate and he will not let my people go now we'll apply another tool one we've been using all along but we haven't really talked about specifically this tool i call reflection and association we use it when the other tools still haven't fully explained the passage. With this new tool, we think about the people in the story as real live people, and we think about other times in scripture or in our own experience that similar situations come up. We haven't run across the hardening of hearts or being obstinate in the Bible so far, specifically anyway, so let's think about how obstinacy pops up in our own lived experience. What immediately comes to my mind is a teenager. If you've ever dealt with a teenager, say 14 years old or so, you'll know no matter how pliable and docile they were as a child, when they hit 14, they all of a sudden become rebellious. Obstinate is a good word for it. No matter what you say, they'll take the opposite position. And we know this is because separating their identity from ours is their primary life task at this age. They're figuring out their identity by expanding their own boundaries and claiming areas of power that used to be ours as parents. It is quite literally a power struggle and it doesn't have anything to do with the merits of our opinions as parents. They will oppose us simply because we are the parent. And I think that's exactly what's happening here with Pharaoh. God, simply by being God, by being present, by being in Pharaoh's face, will cause a violent reaction in Pharaoh. Pharaoh has absolutely no intention of relinquishing any part of his power. And when faced with God, Pharaoh's heart will become intractable. The very presence of God will cause him to become blindly obstinate. Does that make sense? It does to me. Although reflection and association is a powerful tool for understanding the Bible, you have to be aware that it's subjective. I always begin reflection and association with prayer asking God to bring understanding to my mind. Sometimes it takes years before understanding comes, and other times it's only moments. The associations other people make might be different than the ones you come up with, and they are likely to be just as valid. I've shown you how I arrived at my conclusions about what it means for God to harden Pharaoh's heart. But you can do your own thinking on this, and you may arrive at a different conclusion. After God says Pharaoh's heart will be hardened, God says, Tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. Say to him, I told you to send my son off so he may worship me, but you refused. So now I'm about to kill your firstborn. Wow. But if you think about it, from God's point of view, it makes sense. Pharaoh is literally killing God's firstborn, God's own family. And God is going to try to stop Pharaoh with lots of non-lethal warnings. Then when those don't work, God will try to stop him by killing animals to show Pharaoh that God can indeed kill if he must. And when that doesn't work, God will strike Egypt's firstborn sons. He won't kill all the Egyptians, he won't destroy Egypt, but he will do whatever it takes to make Pharaoh relent and let Israel go. How far God has to go is going to depend on how obstinate Pharaoh is, but one way or another, God is going to free his people. This is really important to understanding everything that happens in Exodus. God is going to rescue Israel and establish them in a safe place of their own no matter what it takes. This statement about killing the firstborn is immediately followed by a crazy story. While Moses and his family are traveling to Egypt, 
God meets him at night and tries to kill him. Now, most folks will assume the hymn, God meets and tries to kill, is Moses, but it doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It never names him. It just says him. Now, God is already coaxing Moses into doing this in the first place. And I assure you, Moses would be glad to turn back at the least excuse. So there would be no need for God to kill him, to keep him from going. The underlying Hebrew doesn't give any other hints, so we use the next step in the reflection and association tool, and that is looking at the immediate context of the passage. The only other males in this particular scene are Moses' two sons, Gershom and Eleazar. The sentence that sets the scene up says that God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son because Pharaoh is preventing God's firstborn, God's firstborn son from leaving and God's son is dying. Therefore, I think him can only mean Moses' firstborn son, Gershom. So now let's reflect on why God would kill Gershom. Again, we use the tool of immediate context. God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn only because Pharaoh is preventing Israel from being freed. The firstborn sons are not the problem. Pharaoh is the problem. So who could the problem be here in Moses' own family? It's not Moses. Moses is on his way to do what God commanded. So it can only be his wife Zipporah. Somehow, Zipporah must be threatening God's rescue of the Israelites. And sure enough, Zipporah is the principal actor in this scene. When God threatens to kill Gershom, Zipporah springs into action. She takes a piece of flint and circumcises her son. Now, that's very interesting. Gershom has not been circumcised already. Then Zipporah touches someone's feet with the foreskin and says, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. Again, it doesn't say whose feet, but since she mentions a bridegroom, I assume it can't be her son's feet. That would leave Moses or God as the possibilities. Now, Moses is already circumcised. Both the Egyptians and the Hebrews practiced circumcision, and we're told later that all the men who came out of Egypt were already circumcised. So neither the statement nor the action would make sense with respect to Moses. So Zipporah must be touching God's feet with it and calling God her bridegroom of blood. But why? There are no other clues from the Hebrew itself or even from the immediate context. So now we need to look for other similar themes, keywords, or characters in scripture. This isn't the first time I've reflected deeply on this passage but it is the first time I reflected on it right after studying Genesis carefully. And this time, associations began to emerge. I remembered that Zipporah's father is a priest of Midian, but it never says he's a priest of Yahweh. The Midianites, in fact, worship a pantheon of gods. They're pagans. And then I remembered that Gershom's own son, also grew up to be a priest. And we know from Judges chapter 18 that he was not a priest of God, but a pagan priest like his great-grandfather Jethro. Where did he learn that? Not from Moses. It must have been from Zipporah and her father. And I also remembered that in Exodus 18.2, Moses eventually divorces Zipporah and sends her back to her father. The phrase sent her away in, eight, in Exodus 18.2 is the Hebrew phrase for divorce. All this combined made me think this is another case like Rachel's where Zipporah is an idol worshiper. I think Gershom was not circumcised because Zipporah did not worship Yahweh. And I think Moses let it slide just like Jacob let Rachel's idol worship slide. So if Zipporah was an idol worshiper, I don't think she'd willingly gather up her family and trek across the desert to Egypt where Hebrews are all immediately forced into slave labor. 
I don't think she believes in Yahweh, or at least she doubts that Moses is hearing Yahweh correctly. I think she's doing everything in her power as a wife to talk Moses out of doing this. And that's why God shows up the way he does. Moses is in danger of turning back because of Zipporah. So just like God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn to get the Israelites free, God will kill Zipporah's firstborn to get her to stand down and to support Moses going back to Egypt. Zipporah, like Pharaoh, is standing in the way of God's rescue of the Israelites. And just like Pharaoh, God isn't going to start meeting out dire consequences without specific, clear communications first. Pharaoh will know exactly what he's doing and why God is angry and what to do about it before it ever gets to the killing stage. And although it's not recorded in this story, I feel sure God has done the same with Zipporah. Her actions in this story don't make sense in a vacuum. They only make sense if she already knew what God wanted and why it was of life and death importance. Once I made that association, the whole passage made much more sense. Here in the desert, in order to save her son's life, Zipporah circumcises him, throws the foreskin at the feet of God, and pledges herself to God. She says, see, I've circumcised him. You win. You are, we are your people now, your flesh and blood. And God relents. Wow, I really think that's what happened. But remember that whenever you use the reflection and association tool, your resulting interpretation is subjective. It can be very helpful to have other people's reflections and associations to think about. Often, the combined work of the group can yield an even stronger result. And you may find your reflections and associations deepen and broaden over time. The more you know about the Bible, the more material you will have for God to work with in your mind and soul. If I had not known about Rachel and Jacob, or if I had not known that Gershom's son was a pagan priest, or if I had not known that the Midianites worshipped gods other than Yahweh, I might not have been able to put these pieces together in this way. The more broadly you study the Bible, the better your conclusions are going to be, and the less likely it will be that a passage like this will rock your understanding of God. You'll know there has to be an explanation that fits God's nature of mercy and compassion. There's no hint of where Moses was during all this. Perhaps he slept through it all. Perhaps he was a witness. At any rate, the family continues their journey the next day. When they get to the mountain of God, they meet Aaron. As they journey to Egypt, Moses tells Aaron all that's happened. And when they get to Egypt, Aaron tells all the people and does all the miracles the Lord told them to do. And the people believe and worship God. Okay, that was a lot of tough and maybe confusing stuff. Um, so we're going to stay together for our breakout session today so we can talk about this or anything else, any other questions you may have. Uh, this, this explanation makes so much more sense to me. The, you know, I always struggled with the idea of God killing, you know, essentially innocent firstborn sons mm -hmm. um, just to make a point. But this tying the scenario together in that way just makes so much more sense. Yeah, it makes sense that when you put it together, that the plagues each had a purpose. It wasn't just that, okay, God came up with, well, we'll do this. I never understood the plagues, why they happened the way they did. And I couldn't fathom God being the God I know to being the God that would do all this for no reason, you know, just because he made Pharaoh not believe. So he punished all these people for no reason because he made Pharaoh do it. Um, so that, yeah, this, this really helps answer a lot of questions I had. Yeah. The, 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 what, what you said about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, um, that was something I've always struggled with. You know, why would God deliberately make Pharaoh not 
want to relieve release the Israelites and then do all these terrible things to the Egyptian people because God had made Pharaoh not want to comply and and that does make God look very um, cruel and um, random and and just so inconsistent with the nature of God that we see elsewhere in the Bible but the idea of the power dynamic that that presence of someone speaking on God's behalf in front of Pharaoh triggered this immediate power struggle response in Pharaoh and Pharaoh was going to win because Pharaoh was a god in Egypt and how dare you bring this other god into my domain you know I'm greater than your god because this is my turf that that whole thing makes so much more sense yeah I've been you know it's always disturbed me that um the the big explanation that I grew up with was that God is holy and God is mighty and God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so God can prove that he can do it and God can so that God can display all these miracles to prove that God is God so that the Israelite people will know that God is God and um and can do anything and so that and so the whole world will know and and i i could understand you know the need for god to um display who he was in a very graphic way to both the israelites and the rest of the world i i actually understand that because he's a new god to them you know and uh, and he's he's got a bunch of slaves who are not a nation. <laughs> They're just a bunch of slaves that share an ethnic background. And he's going to call them out and make them into a nation. And he's going to make these um, uh, promises that he made to Abraham happen. And the biggest part of that promise is, I will be your God you will be my people and through you, I will be able to bless the entire world. That's the promise in a nutshell, you know? Um, and to do that, I'm going to put you in a land where you're safe, you know? And, um, and I, I intend to bless you. And I could understand that God um, needed to do something really visual, <laughs> you know, and tactile, as for these Israelites to get it, that he was a God that was different and that was better than the Egyptian gods that perhaps they've been worshiping, you know, all along. He's got to separate them out somehow. And I could see that, but I never could reconcile that this whole, like you were describing, capriciousness, the whole, why would he harden Pharaoh's heart and then punish the Egyptians? That just... You know, God can do miracles without having to make them punishment. Yep. Right? There had to yeah, be and, another explanation. Yeah, and, and, and like you were saying, um, Aaron came to the people and, and he and Moses performed the miracles so the people could see that they were speaking on behalf of God, even if this was a new God to them. And then all of the miracles that happened once they left Egypt, the miracles of provision and protection would tell them who God is. And so the, the plagues, to me, it seems like for the people of Israel, those plagues were not necessary for God to show Israel who God is. Exactly. Exactly. And the fact that the plague started out as non-lethal and then moved to lethal only to animals and then only at the very end, you know, I mean, they had these whole discomfort plagues going on, you know, let's, you know, make them miserable. Maybe they'll just, and then only that very last one got to the death of the firstborn. And that was directly linked, you know, to what Pharaoh was doing to God's firstborn. 
So what about this whole bridegroom of the blood thing? Had y'all ever read that passage before or studied it? I've touched on it a little bit in the past, but um, mostly under the patriarchy who, you know, was telling that same scenario or the same narrative that you were just talking about. And so they just kind of passed over it. And, you know, most of the preachers don't want to talk about circumcision in front of a mixed audience. So <laughs> I'll talk but, about anything in front of a mixed audience. <laughs> but the, the part and maybe I'm the weirdo in the bunch, I don't know, but the part I'm going is, how old was Gresham? Yeah. And he just let his mom do that? Come here, son, I'm gonna cut off your foreskin. Um, okay, go ahead, mom. You know, I'm like, how did that even happen? You know, like, if, if he was of any age at all, he would, you know, be, I don't think so. <laughs> this yeah. is a part of me, no, you know, it's my body, you have no rights. I, that yeah. just, yeah. And it, and it kind of makes you wonder if Moses was present and assisting. Possibly. Is he a grown boy or a man? We a don't know. Adult? That's what I was thinking, but we don't know. They don't all we know is that All we know is that he had a younger brother. So he could have been anywhere from one on up. That's true. So if he was an infant, you know, that makes Didn't sense. Didn't they but... say something about Moses' age when... Gershom was born and then Moses' age when he saw the burning blood? I don't know. I don't remember if it, it said how old he was. I don't think it said how old he was when Gershom was born, but I could be wrong. So look that up. See if you can see it. But I mean, that's obviously the thing where, you know, just like Rachel yelled at, um, it's Joseph, right? Rachel and Joseph. Jacob. Um, yelled at Joseph Jacob. about you're a bloody... Jacob, sorry, Jacob, you're a bloody person and you know, it's a bloody religion and bloody, you know, and, um, you know, Zipporah, I'm sure it was, you know, <laughs> I'm not doing that to my kid, you know, and um, I, and I, I get that. I totally see her resistance. And, you know, I was like, daddy wasn't, why should we do that to our kids, you know, and we're not Jewish, so we don't need to, you know, but I mean, in, in, especially in the Old Testament that is significant if you're worshiping their, that God. If you're worshiping Yahweh, that is significant. And, and I and I could and I had it all had always been um, explained to me in those terms that it that it had to be done because Gershom had to be circumcised because Moses was on this holy mission, you know. But that still did not square with me like those miracles it didn't square with me as to why god was going to kill somebody over this but that was zipporah's um i'm not worshiping that god i've already got gods i'm satisfied with my gods and then zipporah's saying okay 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 here it is <laughs> you know, exactly, but, exactly. But she yeah. had to have known i mean who runs who goes around and when you're with a piece, with a flint knife in your pocket in the middle of the night and, you know, God shows up to kill your son, know that what you need to do is circumcise him. There had to have been some dialogue between her and God before this, or it makes no sense at all. All it says after Gershom was born, uh, it was a long time the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned for their difficult labors. So it just says a long time. So he was clearly not an infant anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's kind of, it makes me wonder if it's um, parallel uh, to um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Isaac was old enough to know what was going on, you know? Hmm. So very well, it also makes me wonder the, um, the, the circumstances under which God was was going to potentially kill Gershom, to me, coming from my perspective as a nurse, that could imply an illness and a high fever and them sitting at a potential deathbed scenario Ooh. and Zipporah realizing, I have to do something drastic here. Maybe this is... Uh, spiritual thing, you know, because a lot of, of medicine in that day had to do 
with the God, pleasing the gods. Um, and perhaps this was her act of capitulation to please the God that she perceived as killing her son. So that, yeah, that is a so much perfect sense. example of how reflection and association works best in a group. <laughs> and we don't know if that is indeed the scenario, but it sure as heck makes sense. It really does. And it also makes sense if he was older, why he didn't fight it because he was weak and she just came up and threw it and it says you know she's throwing it at god's feet she just took it outside or whatever looked up at the heavens and went there you know you could see that you win you yeah. win okay exactly. and so this is this is precisely what how this tool is supposed to work it's where you go off you pray about a passage to yourselves you study it, you bring everything you have to it, you get back together and, and then each of you bring what you have. So I brought what I have and Renee brought the, the idea that Gershom was older and Marlene brings the idea that, oh, maybe he was really ill, you know, and that's why there was no resistance and that's why he was at the point of death. You know, all of that just makes so much sense. And, and I, I'm hoping also that, that these tools, the, the idea of when you run into something, that the first thing that pings inside of you is the Holy Spirit. That you have a bedrock knowledge of who God is. And that that bedrock knowledge is a God of love and compassion and mercy. And that when you get to a scripture passage that pings against that, that you stop, you take off your backpack and you start digging around for tools, you know, and that you know the order to use these tools in, that you first tool is the look at the language, you know, the second tool is look at the context, the immediate context as in what's the, what is the a topic sentence here and it may have been two chapters back you know you look at the literary structure could this be part of an intercalation or is it a chiasm and therefore it's kind of structured funny you know what does it mean in within this literary construct if that doesn't work you go to the immediate context before and after just the sentences before and the sentences after and then if that doesn't work, you broaden the con. That's when you broaden to this whole, you know, reflection and association and just kind of pulling together the themes and the, and the ideas and the key words and the characters further out in scripture. This kind of discipline in how you analyze a passage and how you interpret it is really important um to keep to protect us from taking scripture um out of context and wrong you know and just making up a story or using scripture to justify what we want uh, and and this keeps you protected from being bible bashed i don't want anybody to ever again be able to beat you with the bible yeah i have a three-parted question and the first part you can answer and the second two parts might be rhetorical, I'm not sure. But the first part is, did you learn these tools in seminary? No, ma'am. I learned some of them in seminary. So for example, um, I, I took both Hebrew and Greek in seminary. And okay. I took Judaism from a rabbi. And I took uh, Old Testament, you know, um, and I took New Testament. These are all basic things. And I took Hebrew, what's called Hebrew exegesis, which is, and Greek exegesis, both. I did a lot of exegesis classes. Exegesis is what we're doing. This is what I do, what I am doing for you. That is, I'm applying all the tools that I've got and I'm drawing, it means exe means out. So I'm drawing out the meaning and interpreting it for you. I'm putting it together. So exegesis is just a fancy word for interpretation, you know, but it's okay. a scholarly kind of interpretation. We've got pastors. Uh, I've, 
I've sat under the ministry of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight different men now. Oh, nope, left those two out. Ten different men. None of them ever explained any of these tools to us. And with some of them, I was in deeper Bible studies and stuff like that. But I hear the rhetoric. I hear the same thing over and over coming out of the mouths. Some of them were Baptists, some of them were Methodists, some were non-denominational. It's been under various and sundry, you know, uh, backgrounds, but they're all saying the same thing. This is the first time I've heard something new or something different in as long as I can remember. And it's not, and you're this, not that you're any more intelligent or or brilliant or no more things or whatever than all these other these these other people that I've sat under. I'm like, why have none of these other people ever explained these tools to their congregations, especially to the people in their congregations who want to go deeper, who want to know more? Did these men not learn these same tools that you've learned? I I don't understand. Laziness. <laughs> Inte intellectual mental laziness uh, you know when when you know that somebody else has said that this is the correct interpretation it's so easy to just say oh yeah okay i'll just do that i won't i won't go to the work of really looking deeply at it i'll just you know somebody else has already said it so i'll just accept that also the interpretation the quote accepted or the typical interpretation i mean it make to them it makes sense so they're like well, yeah like like woody said okay that makes sense to me and so as he said i'll go with that um one thing that i i found i i when you talk about gail when you talk about this has you know that this goes so much better in a group it does remind me and you said that you studied judaism under a rabbi it does remind me of of um a group of rabbis coming together and taking one particular scripture and they can talk for hours and you know and that that is the way that is the process by which they learn they participate in their faith and strengthen their faith and uh, how they come to their conclusions. And so, you know, and I'm sure that in seminary, they do that to a certain extent. And when they're putting out a new, well, let's put it this way. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. But when they're, when they're putting out a new interpretation of the Bible, because there have been very recent ones, and, but still they say, the, they say that it's Moses that he's come to kill. And then you have to look at the really teeny tiny print that says, or son. You know, <laughs> you have to look at the really teeny, teeny, tiny print to find that. And uh, uh, so, I mean, you have, we have to want to take the, make the effort and um, take the time and not be lazy to, um, to find these things too. And I mean, as you know, as Gail said, I find this much more enriching to do it in a group than on my own. <laughs> oh, heavens, yes. I think we have a lot to learn from the way that that Jews approach scripture. Absolutely. So I, Absolutely. I, you know, like the saying, you know, where 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 two Jews gather, you have three opinions. Um, huh? <laughs> and and I remember going to a bar mitzvah. Um, for one of my daughter's friends when they were, you know, 13. And, and we sat through the service um, where he got up and did the reading and, and all of that. And it was so fascinating to me to see that the sermon time actually was a Bible study. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was opened up to the congregation to offer their opinions and interpretations rather than just being dictated to from the pulpit. And I thought we should be doing this in Christian churches. It was Amen. fascinating. You know, it's funny because the pastor with whom I'm probably the closest from all of my past um, is, I call him dad. Um, 
he was my pastor when my father passed away and his daughter and I were best friends. So he kind of became my surrogate dad and he took care of me through college and made sure I had what I needed and stuff like that. When he was my pastor, he taught us, try the spirits. Don't believe something just because I say it, read the Bible and learn it for yourself. He taught me that. And now when I say something contrary to what he's, he's, he's like, I don't know where you got that. I didn't teach you that. And I'm like, but dad, you taught me to think for myself. And I appreciate that you taught me to think for myself. And so, you know, we go around a bit. He still loves me. I still love him, but uh, there are days. And that's <laughs> but, what I want to give you guys back is the power and the confidence to think for yourself here. You know, I want you to see how much wiggle room there is in here. And, and I also want you to get a feel. I want to give you back the texture of the story. Our translations have been so homogenized that you completely lose the personality of the stories and the personalities of the writers, of the writing that's done. And I want to give you back some of that. And that's partly why I, um, I want you to understand how earthy this is, this story is, how raw and how imperfect and how earthy and what rough texture there is in these people and in, in, in these stories. This is, you know, just like, just like C.S. Lewis used, used to say, Aslan is not a tame lion. And our God mm -hmm. is not tame. And so every time we think we've got it all explained and we come to the end of class and we've tied it up in a little bow, I want you to know the Holy Spirit is out there tugging on the end of that bow because <laughs> growth <laughs> happens when you're not comfortable. All right. So class is over. I'm glad to stay and chit chat, but I wanted to let you know we've reached the end of our time.